Today is July 23rd, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chestokom Aki, or Tekots Nagotine Siku. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Denny. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Denny elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. I always get a kick out of the uh, my elder saying, oh, you sound like a southerner. And I do. <laughs> my Denny lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe. In Treaty 11, my people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clinchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene, which is actually in Treaty 8. Uh, through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian politics meant to divide um, Indigenous peoples' inherent rights, Indigenous Two-Spirit, or the Indigenous 2S LGBTQ plus community, and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I don't speak on behalf of all Indigenous, I just share my journey as I walk down my road. Um, as a Dene woman who has attempted to run, uh, joined harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow for incarceration, a denial of ju justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue reports to advocate for and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for this so-called country named Canada. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping that harm as a citizen and see your role as a treaty partner in reconciliation. Pride Month should never be one month, as it's important to understand the straight agenda and gender violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian and now more religious outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner as in a so-called time of reconciliation. It's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all people to introduce themselves with an acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a Treaty 7 partner, uh, citizen of Canada, refugee, or other land displacement, so we as Indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you won't pronounce your local Indigenous nations' names, won't pronounce your pronouns, say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, econo imposed economic oppression, or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken lies, or broken treaties and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. 
That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book, Unreconciled, explains it perfectly, as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but it would be a part of a treaty partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation and honoring initiatives like the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the opposed US-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7 now, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that in, uh, include, of course, the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Good Stony or Wesley, as well as the Shiniki and Bearspaw nations of the Stony and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And with that, I am super excited to have a returning guest. Caleb, would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love listening to your introduction. It reminds me of uh, so many important things that I need to hear on a regular basis. So thank oh, you for good. inviting me to introduce myself. My name is Caleb Anaker, and I am a white settler. I was born on Treaty 8 territory near High Prairie, Alberta. My parents come from my father from the U.S. Before the U.S., he came from uh, Germany and England and my mother's people came from Montreal uh, where they lived until this uh, since the 1600s and prior to that they lived in uh, Normandy in the north of France mm. and uh, I currently live on the traditional territory of uh, Treaty 6 or sorry the mixed, mixed all that up. <laughs> I live on the traditional territory near Cahuan Cree Nation and uh, it's in Treaty 6 territory. And I, uh, I call myself a, a visitor and a, um, a guest on these lands. And I am thankful to the uh, creatures and spirits in all the four directions for giving me life today. Thank mm. you. Wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. So for folks who don't remember, uh, we did uh, dissect a bit a book about uh, St. Paul Métis. And uh, I really enjoyed that book. My husband did as well. And I've encouraged folks to, to read it. And I, I know I've had a few friends absolutely read it because we had uh, showcased it on the podcast. So I'm uh, really excited to have you back and, and talk a bit about what you're thinking about now. Um, thinking about so many things, I, I, I don't really have many talking points more. I just wanted to have a conversation with you and to have, I even wanted to have you to provide the opportunity to throw some things my way because of what I've done in my life. 
And so in the last number of uh, podcasts that you've had, or at least the ones I've listened to, there's been a strong element of pushing back against child welfare and pushing back against hospital social work and pushing back against concept of uh, reconciliation and the role of psychologists in uh, constantly playing the position of, oh, this is such a beautiful start and never taking it further. Yeah. Um, This is a great first step. That's my favorite line. If I hear that line one more time, I just want to punch someone in the face. (laughs) Yes. No, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. And so I want to put myself out there as I'm just about all of those things. You know, I'm white, I'm cis male, I'm hetero, I'm petit bourgeois. I am a social worker. I worked for children's services for 12 years in rural Alberta, and I'm currently working as a therapist who is trying to navigate how in developing a practice, how do I brand myself in the way that capitalism requires of me to draw the attention of, I do want to work with Indigenous people, Mm -hmm. but not like the way that psychology and clinical social work always has. And I'm bound to probably screw that up lots along the way. Sure. Um, So that's, that's where I am and where I'm coming from. And I, I, yeah, I just wanted to (laughs) provide the opportunity to, to listen to you, or even if you wanted to ask questions about my experiences on the inside of children's services work or on the inside of counseling where I can just kind of ad yeah. lib and sure do whatever no we that do sounds here. great well we can ad lib through it I mm-hmm. just I think it's really important that we we say this to folks who are listening especially uh settlers who may not understand for folks who don't understand if I have to if I'm in the middle of trauma and I have to explain to my incredibly privileged white male settler uh, counselor you know, the basics and fundamentals of racism or indigenous, you know, I, at what point, like they should be paying me, right? Like I, I should be getting paid for educating them. But for folks who don't understand this, it is literally an everyday reality for every single indigenous person who is working in this colonial construct to have to explain basics to settlers. Because of course the education system is so woefully um, not giving that information to anybody. And then for our new settlers, they have already been taught anti-Indigenous stigma. So like they're the first thing that every person that, that comes to Canada should see is Indigenous people in regalia. They should hear our drums and our singing and they should absolutely smell our smudges as part of the, hey, you're in Canada now. And ironically, a lot of uh, tourists, especially who come to Canada, they think that's what they're going to experience. But instead they see this demographic of people being tossed aside as trash, as uh, we have seen uh, again. And for folks who don't uh, know, we talked about this with Joey English years ago when uh, she was tossed in the trash. and you know, we would tell people and there was absolutely no outrage whatsoever. Um, You know, so for the family, it was very hurtful, very painful. Um, And that bigger picture, we have to do all this education in order for people to even possibly start working with us. So let's say you're a black person who experiences everyday racial trauma. And, um, you know, for a white settler, they may not understand that. If you're uh, non-Indigenous, you may not understand the racial trauma that Indigenous people have to face every day. And then worse, we tell 
what has happened that, you know, the RCMP raped me, the Calgary police beat me up and they go, oh, well, you know, obviously there must've been a reason or that couldn't have possibly happened as opposed to what they would do with any other white settler and be like, oh my God, how do we start processing this and talking about trust in institutions and all these things? Like, well, we just never get there because we, we as Indigenous people can't trust the people that we're supposed to be confiding our issues in. And worse, if I were like a white person saying, oh, sometimes I just want to kill my daughter. But if I'm a native mom saying that, all of a sudden it's like, oh, let's apprehend that kid. How you were able to keep this child to begin with, we'll never understand. Because for folks who don't know, as soon as I give birth in the hospital, a red flag goes off and it says, oh, this person's a native oh, let's call in a social worker because they can't possibly take care of themselves. And for anyone who's actually read the entire TRC, they would know it was an uh, Indian residential school pipeline that started the 60 scoop, which is still continuing today, apprehension system of stealing our babies. So, and Cindy Blackstock has done a lot of work at trying to raise awareness to the inequities that, that are, are in the system. But that bigger picture is, is that this is cultural genocide. So like there's actual genocide of just murdering us for funsies because they can, but then there's the actual part of, oh, you can't possibly be a parent. So we're gonna take your child. And uh, the, I, I think the only reason why my daughter wasn't apprehended is because my husband isn't status. So that's, that's literally where we are, folks. And uh, we just celebrated, uh, you know, my daughter's 16th birthday. So in 2004, it was still like, or 2007, it was still like this. And, um, you know, now we're going, in 2007, I was putting complaints in with the Calgary Health Region, and then it switched to AHS. And now apparently we're going back to regional uh, healthcare. So it's just, this entire system sucks. I hate it from head to toe. Um, and I've experienced so much racism from the system, the medical system in general, that I, I have zero trust in it. And I'm sure I'll be one of those people that will absolutely die at something preventable if I wasn't red flagged as native. If I was just a white person walking in, sure they'd be like oh here you go ma'am we will treat you for a heart attack we will treat you for a stroke oh but you're a native a dirty squaw we don't want you around here and they'll treat me as such and i'll die so like that is the reality in 2023 that i experience who's somebody who doesn't have addictions doesn't you know don't have a recovery story i <laughs> tried to draft wells and pipelines for the world and just be a part of the society and it was actually at the calgary health region that said oh yeah you're just a dirty squaw we don't want you raising your kid that's what started all of this so for folks who don't know this is the reality in 2023 and this is why as indigenous people if you introduce yourself as a social worker we see you as the devil incarnate just like if, if you introduce yourself as a catholic priest or a priest from a christian church we really have to get to know you and and get to trust you and that's why when you do see me work with folks who i wouldn't normally want to work with it is absolutely me giving them that opportunity to, for you know as a treaty partner reconciliation whatever it is that we're working on for me to be like, okay, I'm gonna give you a shot. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> so just wanted to give that background, Caleb. Is there anything you'd like to draw from that? 
Oh, where to start exactly? Um, I guess I can just reflect on some of the things that um, I've also seen from, from a professional lens that just confirms more of what you're talking about down there is, is happening up here too. And um, I've done a fair number of talking to people in a variety of situations and the number of times that I'm hearing that people, you know, like they have to dress up to go to the hospital because they don't want to be misperceived. Uh, um, as, and so like there's a um, that's kind of the major point I wanted to draw upon is certainly there's a plenty of the, um, I'll call it overt racism, but I'm not sure people are consciously aware that they're being overtly racist. They'll glance at someone, they'll see, oh, slightly darker skin, and they'll take a different approach to them and not re maybe realize that they're doing it. There might be people that do realize that they're doing it because of a whole system. It's not just there's no such thing as individual racism as far as I'm concerned. It's all systemic. It all boils down to cultures and systems of you create a whole worldview where the most advanced people look a particular way. That's how you can identify the most advanced race on earth is by tells, you know, the lightness of their skin. That was the way of viewing people for a very, very long time and still is. We just don't say it as loudly anymore. Mm -hmm. And so those kind of cues are coming up. So the darkness of your skin is a cue to, um, you know, maybe it's not something, something uh, not quite uh, equal with you somehow. And you react to people in a particular way that, that gives up that, that belief in yourself. And then you add to that another layer that the whole purpose of Canada's project here was to make Indigenous peoples extinct. So by direct killing, by taking land away, by taking resources away, by forcing people onto reserves that created conditions under which they had to live under such poverty that enfranchisement seemed like a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, those things create the circumstances for cultures of people, subcultures of people to develop with a particular look. And that particular look is intentional poverty. And so people create culture and wonder what are the conditions they're in. And so if you look a particular way, because you can afford a certain type of clothes and you show up at the hospital wearing, you know, not the clothes that the upper middle class or middle class wear, it might not be the color tone of your skin that gets you mistreated or treated differently. Is that your clothes smell funny or that you look a little bit bit different or you don't have this flashy thing or the other um who are the people that are most likely to be in poverty uh well it turns out <laughs> indigenous peoples peoples of color newcomers those types of things and so that goes into that's another layer upon layer upon layer of interacting with healthcare systems where you don't look right the right way because of the color of your skin or because of the clothes that you're wearing and um then because of all of those things, plus the traumas that you experience because of intergenerational trauma, because of racial trauma, because of um, increased issues in your community as a result of this genocide and colonization, all of the other things going on, you're more likely to have to deal with those things or adapt to those things by using substances, by uh, having um, what people call mental disorders, but are really just, you know, the mind adapting to incredibly toxic and damaging circumstances. So you're functioning perfectly in your dysfunction. And so you go to the hospital and you have an understaffed hospital system that is run at 110% when it's meant to be running at a 70 or 80%. And you get bombarded with people who are having a really bad day, plus all of their other mental health disorders, and they smell funny and all of the other things. And so you start to have bad interactions or a bad taste in your mouth because of your workplace burnout or because of the bad day in, day out of having to deal with difficult people. So who do you start to treat bad automatically? 
you know, the people who show up there the most frequently and the people who show up there most frequently are most, most likely to be damaged by the system of colonization in the first place. And so that, that, that goes, that's for the healthcare system. The same is true of, of child welfare system as too. And so you're more likely to be in contact with these people and have more negative interactions with these, with these kind of things. And so that creates that systemic racism where my automatic reaction to deal with a certain particular type of person that looks a particular way is to, ah, I got a bad gut feeling in my, I don't like dealing with these type of people. And it's always the same type of people. And so am I trying to be racist? Kind of. But it's a lot more like I need to do better. Me not being anti-racism, anti-racist in my own approach to my work is racism. It's pushing the, the wheel of racism further down the hill. Yeah. Um, but there's also a very strong system of racism that's out of my control, that's bigger than me, that I can't deal with on my own, that is causing this kind of racial damage to people. And so that's where you get the mistreatment of more frequent contact with social workers from child welfare or at the hospitals and those types of things. And that's, that's really, really important for people to know is question the power structures, question the institutions as to why, why are things, why is there more contact happening with Indigenous peoples? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the spoiler is the problem is not with Indigenous peoples. Nope. <laughs> that's the irony, isn't it? Yeah, the irony of uh, not having medical facilities on reserves, the irony of having stolen land, the irony of having intergenerational trauma and then trauma and not having the resources for it. It's just, it's so frustrating. And, and that actually breaks treaty as well. Uh, treaty talked about us having medical services. And ironically, um, you know, this concept of privatization has really gone against treaty and not too many people are really talking about the gravity of that and uh you know and and most people just don't want to listen to me so uh, you know when i say it it's just not registering like you are literally treaty people and you're breaking treaty by voting in these politicians that have no interest in in our best interest as, as treaty partners for equality for equity yeah yeah, and I, that treaty conversation is just so, so fraught because it's two people's talking past each other. You listen to your average politician in this province, in the country as well, but particularly in this province. And I, I did my master's in social work, um, actually studying a lot of child welfare, but from kind of a decolonial lens. Uh, so I, I paid particular close attention when we got to listen to people like um, well, I've forgotten who they are now, but uh, you're local. <laughs> when the NDP was in power, you know, the local, uh, we had a few ministers come in and speak and those types of things. And you listen and you ask questions about treaty and the question that the answer that you get immediately tells you that the way that they think about treaty is treaty means that the land was sold, surrendered, given up, given away. Yeah. Talk yeah. to any Indigenous scholar of treaty who understands the treaty in the language in ceremony. None of them think that way. How do you think that happened? Then <laughs> right? that's why, of course, we dissect these books about uh, Treaty 7 or, you know, I, I actually don't think we've uh, touched Treaty 6. I think that your Métis book was probably the closest to outside of Calgary that we kind of worked on outside the treaty, but um, like uh, other treaties. But 
I know I have a couple of books for from where I'm from that we've talked about maybe doing those ones. So I got to add that to my 2024 list. <laughs> I can't believe I'm already halfway through. I got to start working on that. So and I, I think between that and some of the reports I have, I just there's so much reading to do. <laughs> I don't know how people cannot read about it and not feel passionate, not want to read more. Um, Clearing the Plains was one of those books that hit me so hard, you know, let alone the other other books that we've done. And, and I, I just will never understand how more people don't see their responsibility in mending the uh, harm that that this country was founded on. It was just done. You know, it just feels like we just got founded. So I don't understand how more Canadians don't see their responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, that's just it. I, yeah. I think we as settlers have to do a better under, a better job of, of pushing back against those things and, and continuing to ask the question about we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Like I, I like how you continue to refer to so-called reconciliation. So I, I came into my awareness. The, uh, the, the blinders were taken off of my eyes right around the TRC time um, as well. And so I, I don't, I haven't been around very long as far as I, I would have been your average uninformed um, <laughs> unaware um, settler prior to this. And, you know, like Canadians don't have a culture kind of type um, <laughs> prior, you know, as early as, as 2012, I would say that I would definitely put myself in that camp. Mm -hmm. And so with such a short, short turnaround and, and just kind of taking an interest of what's going on around me and, and thankfully to the people at, uh, at um, the uh, Indigenous University nearby is um, very, very lucky to be exposed to uh, many scholars and knowledge keepers from the Indigenous point of view where they aren't, um, they dedicate their lives to educating others. So I, I feel more comfortable in asking questions and, and to learning from them because I know it's not taking emotional labor and it's not taking labor, um, you know, I'm not asking people to do things for free, to, mm -hmm. but to be able to learn from people that are willing and able to teach me about this history, right? I've lost my train of thought here, but I really wanted to, I wanted to put out some plugs. I don't want to talk about me and where I'm coming from. I wanted to put out some thing, good things that are going on out there in the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one part where settlers can help is educate themselves in the ways that Indigenous people's responsibility is for healing and decolonizing or de more than decolonizing, um, there's a fantastic scholar by the name of Jeff Corntassel, and he talks about it as resurgence. Decolonization gets you to zero. Resurgence is what happens after. Mm, I love that's not that. The way he, that's not the way he puts it, but I really like the, uh, the, yeah, the one article that I make my, my uh, sociology students study about him, and that's, it's not just decolonization, it's decolonization and resurgence of traditional life ways. Oh, and there's, love it. Yeah, there's fantastic things going on out there in those uh, world. And to hear you talk about um, healthcare systems, um, there are some fantastic people working in Kiyuan Cree Nation right now with um, people, including Dr. James McCocus and others. And I'm not sure who is involved in this exact project, but they're doing a traditional doula program so that babies can be born at home on the land. Isn't that so cool? Well, and for folks who don't know, I have a history in getting the midwifery program funded in, in Alberta, thanks to the late uh, Manmi Bular. And I, I do believe that if we wouldn't have funded uh, midwifery, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So for me, it's a, a definitely a source of happiness to know it's happening. And I, I think I shared that on social media, that particular um, 
program because I think there, it, there was coverage of it. And it just makes my heart sing. I'm glad we finally are starting to see the gravity of why this is so needed and so necessary. Um, you know, I remember when I was, I had my daughter and I had researched a lot about water births and, and I had hired a doula and she was a retired nurse. Um, yeah, the, the attitude I got from my OBGYN was, um, yeah, so I, I can't see anything that way. So no. And I was like, you're supposed to be a fucking expert on this shit. And he was such a condescending prick. And ironically, everybody thought he was, oh my God, he's so good looking. So everyone just overlooked the fact he was a jerk. And because he was Asian, it was perfectly okay for him to be racist and anti and have anti-Indigenous bias. And, um, and people truly believe who won't work on themselves that, oh, well, an Asian man can't possibly be racist. And it's like, yeah, he can be, um, you know, he can have his bias against Indigenous people just like anybody else can. And he did. And uh, so I've, the whole uh, situation was horrible. And I wanted to have more children. But because of my experience, there was no way that was going to happen. I, I could not heal enough in order to... Um, even consider going through that trauma again, knowing how unsafe the conditions were for me to have a child. So it was shortly after that, Mami Bular showed up at my door and um, we talked about it. Actually, at first I yelled at him and I told him and Hung Pham, the previous MLA who's wanted by the Canadian police, um, what bunch of pieces of crap their party are. And he took it and he was really great. And we talked about uh, funding midwifery because that's how you talk to conservatives they don't care about morals ethics or or anything they just care about money and I said it was you know fiscally cheaper for us to fund midwifery than it was for us to be funding OBGYNs and he agreed because his his aunt was a midwife so he knew and uh, and agreed with it so for me um, you know that was and and he was a, a young lawyer trying to really prove himself in this caucus. So he was able to work behind the scenes with the then minister, health minister, and get it done for midwifery day for May 5th. So that was a, a wonderful, um, you know, present after, and I was able to take the Hansard notes from the legislature and put it into my daughter's um, birth records, like all of the stuff that you put together for, um, you know, a birth story and things like that. So um, to kind of give it some closure, but uh, unfortunately, I just knew having more children wasn't for me as a result of that experience. And I remember having a conversation with somebody and they were like, well, now that you've had a kid, you must not be pro-abortion anymore. And I laughed. I said, the idea of forcing any child, woman, girl, go through that like I, I i i think it we would be the most horrible people on the planet to force a woman to go through that after what i experienced and um and then of course i found out later when i started unpacking racism that all status natives are are um our health care is covered by a federal jurisdiction so that's the red flag that they see uh, healthcare professionals see when I enter a, um, a facility. They see me as a federal jurisdiction, which I am. I am a ward of the state under the Indian Act. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's the concept of it. And that's why I had such a poor outcome. And, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult for me to hear settler 
friends of mine talk about how great their labor was, how great the staff were at this facility. And I'm like, I wonder what the difference was between you and I. It took me a long time to say it's systemic racism. That's what it was. So. Yeah, um, I'm really sorry to hear about that terrible experience that you had, Michelle. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's not a one-off. Yeah. It's, well, it's if I would have known sooner, I probably would have had more kids out of spite, but I didn't mm -hmm. understand the racism. Like I just, I wasn't unpacking the racism at that point. So. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I, I suppose I could talk a little bit about my children's services experience. I, um, I wonder about how much risk I put myself in about talking about my, my former employment, but I'm not going to be talking about any client specific information and I'm not going to, I'm not throwing children's services under the bus more than they're already throwing themselves under the bus. And if anybody wants to know a little bit more, I recommend going to the opinion article written in the Calgary Herald a few weeks ago by a scholar from Mount Royal, I believe, a child welfare scholar there, who talks about the abysmal state that uh, child welfare is in. I wish I had prepared it on hand, but- um, That's just okay, we'll include it uh, when we when we launch this podcast. And, uh, and I'll also remind folks that there is the Office of the uh, Child Advocate, and they put out a yearly report that tells um, the absolute atrocious conditions that disproportionately affect Indigenous children. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, anyone who's read the MMIW inquiry report knows that that is a pipeline to killing Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirits. So, you know, I, I highly recommend people pay attention to uh, these reports. And I know they don't, and they never hold their MLAs accountable, and they never talk to their MLAs. Most people don't even know the orders of government. All they know is they, they hate Trudeau. Sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Um, oh, where was I going with this? We were talking about the uh, report that came out a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah, the, the, the opinion. Unfortunately, it was an opinion article, but also it was an opinion article from people, someone like who really, really knows their stuff talking within their field of study. And it reflected my experience of working in, in my particular children's services region exactly. And uh, the bottom line of it is, is that children's services is having a really, really hard time hiring people because the caseloads are way too high and the work is way too terrible. And um, so there are vacancies all over the place and people are doing way too much with way too little and every time a budget year comes around you just grit your teeth and like what else could they possibly keep taking away while lying and saying that they're continuing to find fund child welfare um and so that's that's not a great circumstance to be living in and so if nobody and and like all that's to say that um Working in children's services is probably the best compensated position in social work at a bachelor's level. It's a really, really good paying position when you consider, well, not even just like even your frontline pay, speaking again to conservatives, but your front, you know, your, your net pay or your gross pay that you take home, plus your pension, plus fantastic healthcare benefits. Like it's a really solid job to have at a tremendous moral cost and you don't walk out of there with vicarious trauma i'm still going to therapy to work through the trauma that i caused myself and that i caused others working in that position so it's it's not i'm not encouraging anybody to go work there but i'm suggesting that it's a really high compensating job and nobody wants to work there why do you suppose that is <laughs> um and so all of that is going on in this field that 
the primary responsibility of this agency is to intervene to protect children that have been abused or neglected at the verge of or shortly after they've already been abused and neglected. That's what child intervention is ultimately. Um, there are parts of child intervention that are focused on prevention and that kind of early intervention stage. Um, but when people think child welfare, they're not thinking of that part. You think FCSS. FCSS is who's doing prevention and early intervention. I've got really nothing to say about them, but the child intervention piece, nobody works there. And the people who do work there are traumatized, burnt out, can't get jobs other places. Um, and so for one reason or another, end up kind of being terrible. Not that they're terrible as people, but they end up doing terrible things as a result of the conditions that they're under. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give an example of that. And, and I, you know, to me, I'm glad you kind of set the model of how awful the conditions are for a worker to be in that spot, because um, I'll, I can list off children that are 15, 16, and there's no room in a group home, not that those are good places to be, and there's a lot of violence that happened there, but that bigger picture, they're like, well, we'll put them in a, a hotel. So mm -hmm. kids start trafficking themselves very soon in their lives, and yeah. that is a very difficult road to get out of. And as you know, once you've experienced trauma, um, the best coping tool for mental health is addiction. And it, so then you start that road. And so it's, uh, it's an awful cycle. And for anyone who's read the National Inquiry, it talks about this as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And so you have these child welfare workers who then Statistically, I don't know where the numbers are. There should be a new report coming out soon, but this, these are the reports that Cindy Blackstock and people who know more about these things than I do study in detail. It's called the CIS, and they look at all the statistics. And so we know from those studies that have been done, I think, three or four times now every couple of years, uh, they say, you know, what types of calls are made about children? Which ones get open to investigation? Which ones from investigation get turned into open cases? So open cases mean either the child stays in parental care and children's and Children's Services surveils the family, essentially, or the child comes into care either voluntarily or by court order against the will of the parents. And so we can tell at different layers of analysis from all of those things that 70%, 69%, 68%, somewhere in that range in Alberta of the children who come into care are Indigenous. And you look at the reasons why files are open from investigation to ongoing cases, uh, the vast majority of them ultimately boil down to emotional injury and neglect. If you boil down the definition of neglect, so neglect is not receiving the necessities of life, receiving inadequate care and supervision, or not receiving medical, appropriate medical care, um, necessary medical care. And then emotional injury, cooked into emotional injury, is also neglect. Not be, being neglected is an emotional injury. And substance abuse, being yelled at, being name called, having a parent with a severe mental illness. So, Which if you really think about it, those are all broken treaty promises by the Canadian government to Indigenous people. And the result is our children get apprehended as opposed to the Canadian government and mm -hmm. its citizens who vote these racist mofos in being mm -hmm. held accountable for their inactions. So thank you for making my point for me. I'm glad you made it because I was going to make it eventually. 
That's exactly. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly it. It boils down to you know, I was going to go in the direction of that's it's starting to sound an awful lot like poverty, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. It's, and I, I always say it's imposed so uh, imposed poverty by the Canadian government mm -hmm. because it is like there's no nice way to say it. They have purposely set it up so you can't have jobs, so you can't have opportunity, economic development, and um, you are forced to stay there. You know, like it, it, it's underfunded at every every conceivable way, whether we're talking social infrastructure, infrastructure, uh, it doesn't matter what it, what you're talking about. Like the fact that people even think that chief and council matter, they are nothing mm -hmm. but administrators of the Indian Act. They are literally Indian agents. Instead of having one, now we have seven, whatever it is that that nation elects, like that's what yeah. we have. So like, I don't understand this disconnect between Canadians. I, I know what it is. It's racism. It's purpose, purposeful ignorance that causes all of this. But you know, like again, here social workers, nurses, doctors, sociologists, like they should know this. But instead of me, you know, talking about the trauma I'm I have, I have to educate them on this shit. It's stupid. I hate the system. There's, yeah, it's no, it's, it's the system. worst. And you can always tell when a white person doesn't even believe you. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, there's no point in us continuing this. Yeah. You got education from me for free. And then, but from their point of view, it's like, oh, this crazy lady was talking about all sorts of things that can't make any sense. And it's like, or is it that you just are ignorant of it, but you have a fancy degree that you paid for in university. So I must be wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I want to leave with one little anecdote. I, um, this is representative. So this is a story that I've heard over and over and over again from many different people, but there's also a personal element of someone that I dealt with directly. And this just kind of speaks to, getting back to that conservative versus social mindset again, this has a money element and as a social element and things have to change. You wanna save money or if you wanna improve children's lives, apparently we care about children in this province or so they claim, um, their actions say otherwise many, many times. But if you actually care about taking care of vulnerable children, if you actually care about saving money, this is how things are currently working. Work with a family where the mother was essentially homeless, living, well, I would say unhoused, living with relatives, hundreds and thousands, how wide is the province? Hundreds of miles, many hundreds of miles from her home community because her only place to go was in a far, far, far away community where she was living with people she basically didn't know um, and uh, was desperately trying to keep the reins on her substance use so that she could keep her daughter fed and had already kind of, you know, found places for her other children. Wow. This is not a unique experience. This happens all the, all the time. I know I asked, three families right now in that situation right now. Yeah, I asked, knowing the answer ahead of time, but I asked anyways. She, and with some uh, looking around, she found a program that would take her and her daughter for a 90 day treatment option for $30,000. <laughs> so I put in the request, Alberta government pay a portion and the band can pay a portion and NADAP can pay a portion, 10,000 each. That's an eatable amount of fun. And I got laughed out of the room before I even got to the chance of justifying why that's an appropriate cost. And 
If I had wanted to, which I didn't and wouldn't and would refuse to have and would have fought against someone who did, it would have been quite easy for me to say, go through the steps to either coerce the mom into a custody agreement so the child comes into care or go for an apprehension order, at which point we are, um, well, we're paying me over time at call it $60 an hour to do all of that work because none of that work can be done during business hours. I guarantee it. You're paying court workers their fees. I'm paying drivers to take, to put a child with a stranger in a strange car to drive them to a placement probably many hours away because family first and her family, she's probably going to go back to closer to family because I'm doing the work. I'm not going to put her with a stranger, but likely I'm not going to be able to do that right away. So I'm going to have to find an emergency foster home. And so that foster home is going to get, and so by the end of month one, we're well over $10,000. We're probably close to $30,000 in the amount of money that we've already put into strangers' pockets mm-hmm. when we could just hand this woman $30,000 to do the thing that she already wanted to do, get treatment. Right, and, and I know foster parents get paid. They get paid to take care of kids. So why are we not giving that same money to the parents? Like we've imposed poverty. So rather than you know, helping this parent. No, no, no. We have to apprehend it and pay somebody else to raise this kid, assuming they're not abusive, which I hate to say it. I've come way across way too many abusive foster parents. And I'm sure there are some nice ones out there listening. And I know a few myself, but that doesn't mean it's okay to be fucking taking somebody's child and putting them in somebody else's care. And if we're just talking money, as Caleb is, that cost um, that we're talking about because you've easily just gone to the mom mm-hmm. and then we wouldn't be here but in post-poverty it's a it's a nasty thing yeah. so I come with a problem and I offer one small solution and that's a book I had a very very small part in like I helped write one of the 10 chapters or something so a very very tiny part there's much better and uh, more um, diverse knowledge in there than just just my stuff in there. And it's a book by Fernwood Publishing called Opigonawasuan, Growing a Child, Implementing Indigenous Ways of Knowing with Indigenous Families. Mm. Edited by uh, my one of my mentors, or two of my mentors, I should say, Leon Makokas from uh, Kihuan Cree Nation, and uh, Ralph Boder, a scholar from the University of Calgary, retired, um, Avery Calhoun and Stephanie Tyler found it um, it's beautiful what a beautiful uh, cover yeah so that that art was custom um painted by I can't remember his name right now but he's from Gold Lake First Nations and he uh, has since passed away so yeah that cover is a, a memorial to him and uh custom made to represent the teachings within this book Oh, wonderful well you know we'll have to uh, do this for a book club so thank you for that Oh, what a beautiful one. Each of the chapters speaks to Indigenous ways of helping raise children, including from a child welfare perspective. Mm. Oh, this is a beautiful book. Rooted in Indigenous tradition as well. Right now, social work is very focused on trauma-based theory, trauma-based approaches. However, once you understand trauma, what's next? With Indigenous children and families, we need to move into healing so that our work can focus on ceremony-based healing. Oh, that sounds wonderful. What a beautiful book. I'm so glad that you were a part of it. So I see it's kind of written into different pieces here. And one is yours. 
Yeah, that's right. My chapter was on for a flicker of a moment, our children's services region um, tried to train as many people as possible to start interacting with Indigenous families differently, coming mm -hmm. to them expecting to do ceremony, coming to them expecting to bring family together immediately as soon as we know that the concerns are real, because there's certainly more lateral violence and semi-malicious reporting going on there that has to be sorted out first. But as soon as we know the concerns might be real, we bring family. Where's your trusted family together? Let's talk about this together as a group. And you're going to tell me how you're going to close the child welfare file so I don't have to come back. Wonderful. And I see it's uh, sacred fires. And I, I just, I wish I could tell you how much that matters to me. So this mm -hmm. is a beautiful book and I can't wait to read it. That's for sure. Yeah, and I encourage all of the psychologists and social workers and clinicians and nurses and anybody who works with Indigenous children, grandparents, parents, anybody involved in the family system, which you all are, if you're a health, if you're a helper, this is this is a book you need to read. Oh, wonderful. So what a beautiful book. I'll have to, uh, and it looks like it's $30 paper, paperback. So that's really quite affordable, actually, in comparison to some of the other academic books that are out there. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Caleb, for sharing that with us, uh, this book. Is there any other points that you wanted to bring up here for today? Um, well, that was the main point. That's, uh, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> If we're going to get anywhere, we have to talk about solutions as well as problems, and we yep. can't talk about one and just the other. Well, there was this uh, report that came out in 2015, and, and it sure had a lot of solutions in it, but man, that sure went <laughs> over the head of a lot of people, didn't it? <laughs> I, I recall there being 94 something in it. Something about it, hey? <laughs> Then there was this oh, other one and there was like 231 and then and there was this one from 1996 that had these solutions yeah. but geez you know we just just don't like them so i think this is a great solution and i'm looking forward to reading this book so i'm so grateful you joined us today caleb thank you that you had me yeah in a, in a second i think um and, and i'll say this again for folks who maybe this is their first time listening um i love having settlers on here who are legitimately working on reconciliation and being a good treaty partner and like these are examples of that because that's really what our ancestors intended when they signed those treaties was for us to work together and i think that at least here we're starting to open that door considering we've had that door shut for so long so I'm always grateful to connect with settlers trying to do that work. And obviously this book is co-authored by indigenous people. So what a, what a great um, piece to be a part of, that's for sure. Thanks, Caleb. All right, so for folks who are, um, are listening, if you are, I don't care where you are, you can join my book club, it's on Zoom. So you can come, it, we found that after the pandemic that just made it more accessible for folks and for all of the people that we met in person on a regular basis, we actually found it to be way better on Zoom so that that way you can sit at home and enjoy it and not have to go through Calgary traffic for folks who know about Calgary traffic, it's not fun. And uh, and anyway, I always encourage people to uh, to join us, whether it's your first time or or whichever. We have some of those book clubs on my podcast as well. Our next one in, on August 14th is Our Voice of Fire by Brandy Morin. 
So if you have read it and you would be interested in, in discussing it, we'd love to have you. September 11th, we're going to do the Pathways to Justice from the Government of Alberta. They made up 113. So we're going to go through that and talk about that because we just wrapped up the National Inquiry. October 9th, we have Cree lawyer Harold Johnson's book of Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice. On November 13th, we have a, a report to guide the implementation of a national action plan on violence against women and gender-based violence. I get a kick out of it when, you know, federally we have a new final report for uh, gender-based violence when it's like, but we had 231 over here, but it had the word Indigenous, so I guess that wasn't good enough. I don't so anyway, we're going to unpack that one. And then on December 11th, we're going to do Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, ended by um, Joyce Green. And then on January, we're going to be doing Sean Carlton's book about, um, he, he talks about Indian residential schools in BC. Anyway, I'll get you guys that title later. Um, if you are in the Calgary area, highly recommend folks join the Reconciliation Action Group. We do need folks to help us out. Uh, for folks paying attention, I recently ran uh, an auction to reclaim Awaton. And it was actually the Reconciliation Action Group that did a lot of the donations and a lot of the bidding and a lot of the sharing. So if you perceive yourself as a treaty partner, as a good settler trying to work on reconciliation, like how hard is it to just amplify Indigenous voices? And my group has been trying to do that, and I really appreciate them for all that they contribute, so thank you. But if you're not in the Calgary area, or if you're like, I can't stand Michelle, I just listened to her podcast so I can complain, start your own. Like there's a, you can start your own book club, you can start your own reconciliation action group, whether you're, you're, you know, in whether you're in uh, Ottawa, it doesn't matter where you are. Definitely encourage you to start making time to unpack your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. Anyway, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training or cultural first aid and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people, people of colour, those with disabilities and 2S LGBTQ to speak. I want to say thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca. They have a whole component on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. And uh, I would really encourage people to go through that before reaching out to Indigenous people. Uh, their work are cultural action tools, so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. Another one I would recommend is uh, the Elders Protocol through the Alberta Human Rights Commission. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat these here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized uh, folks speak or experienced by the uh, structure of racism imposed on these lands. If you go to racialequitytools.org, one, you can give a donation, but two, there's tons of resource files uh, and a great one on internalized racism by Donna Bevins. Highly recommend. If you are on the C train and you see somebody picking on somebody like a Muslim woman with a hijab or an indigenous woman in a ribbon skirt, like you know what I experienced, you can go to afsc.org. It's the American Friends Service Committee, and they have a great part on do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. 
I also wish that anybody who follows me on my social media would watch the anti-racism organizational lead for the city of Calgary giving an internal uh, committee presentation on the journey of becoming an anti-racism leader. Um, Calgary Black Lives Matter activists Taylor McNally and Adora Nufar are being uh, targeted and I highly recommend help donating to their, um, I guess, legal funds. And Indigenous people have been talking about these issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the um, equity-seeking groups and their budget with Gender Equity Plus, if they are cutting violence prevention programs and services, in this case, uh, social work, <laughs> Indigenous education, uterus health, social, uh, uterus health choices, gay-straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts equity-seeking groups, demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform and violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice, so all the blue voters should be holding their blue MLAs to account on it. You can follow the Premier's Council on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Work, and I have yet to see her do anything when she, before the election and now after the election on this issue. Municipally, we have the Waikus Flying Report, and denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are ex experiencing extreme racism in the child welfare, educational, health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties and local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies because there's so many of them. Also, Stephanie Harp came on to my podcast and we talked a lot about our allies to write and do more on the crisis that we're facing. You can go to aboriginalalert.ca. I'm starting to see some folks share their stuff and I'm grateful for that. Uh, she was also working with the Missing Children's Society of Canada, which you can download their app if you're interested. Um, there's this uh, demand for urgent action on protecting the lives of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, and gender-diverse people experiencing homelessness, which can be found at womenshomelessness.ca. Uh, the opioid crisis, the drug poisoning crisis that we're experiencing right now is through the roof. The data is ridiculous. We've had um, more than 613 in Albertans die from it from just January to April of this year and we have to do more. I advocate for clean supply to start with and these recovery centers that they claim that they're having are one filled with a ton of um, colonial justice style 
forced treatment, which helps absolutely nobody, no cultural understanding. So that's not helping anybody either. And I love how they open up on reserves and so that they can seem like they're doing fine. But again, and Caleb even mentioned it, if they're not unpacking that lateral violence, if they're not focusing on culturally appropriate addiction, it's not going to help. Uh, from the Mending Broken Hearts with the White Bison Society training that I took, culture is prevention. And that is not the goal of the Alberta government. Anyway, I'm going to keep talking. So the National Overdose Response Service, you can call at 888-688-NORS for support. You can also download their Braves or Doors app. There's also a Lifeguard app that might help you. But number one, just don't use alone. And if you are an Albertan, please have uh, Narcan and Naloxone on standby at all times. I do. And I've shared, especially on TikTok, some of the discrimination I find from doctors and pharmacists on that. And I just encourage folks to always be giving out Naloxone kits or Narcan kits if you have access. If you are experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also text on their website, hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. Again, it is 24-7 crisis call line for folks uh, that need that support. Uh, there's the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta at ssisa.ca. Uh, local here in Calgary, we are working on a second annual march or walk from um, raising awareness and, and hopefully maybe a two-day workshop talking about the effects of 60 Scoop um, on Indigenous people. So please, if you're interested, reach out to me and we can get you on the committee. Um, Indian Residential School Survivors and family hotline is 866-925-4413, or sorry, 4419. I don't know why I said three. Um, Native Youth Crisis Hotline is 877-209-1266. For non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area, usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. You can even text them at 45645. And if you go to crisisservicesseekcanada.ca, you will find even more resources. Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868. And the following are two SLGBTQ crisis supports. For folks who don't know, lifevoice.ca has tons of different resources. The Trans Lifeline in Canada is 877-330-6366. Uh, the Trevor Project for LGBTQ Youth, 866-844-7386. Please, those who identify as 2SLGBTQ+, please know you matter. And these stupid adults with all of their stupid religious um, imposed trauma, that's on them. That's not on you. You just live your best self and cover yourself in glitter and enjoy your life because they chose not to. And I'm sorry that you're their... Uh, target. It's not fair. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back, how we get some type of Indigenous uh, representation in media. 
That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, and usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. I and many others share info on these uh, microaggressions daily, so it's just unacceptable anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, uh, folks who survive off the status quo or people who are so in the trauma that they stop us from trying to do the work and deplete personal resources. <sighs> Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for folks like me, uh, folks with disabilities, QT BIPOC, and people who are black or brown. Uh, Masi Cho to my ancestors, to my granny and my mom, what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian is through her. I am a second generation. And thank you to my husband uh, for producing and editing this show, on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child. You know, he has supported my journey down this red road and witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, Thunderpipe Necklace Woman, who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd just love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pimp posts on social media. And I just want to say thanks to anybody who listens. I just can't believe you do. And I'm so honored that you do. But I do want to give side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, are you being my dish? Thanks again for listening, folks.